An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our special guest, Charles Elson. If you're involved in corporate law or corporate governance, or just care about business and society, Charles needs no introduction. He is seemingly ubiquitous and has been for four decades. If you're not familiar with Charles, here's a very abbreviated introduction. Charles is the executive editor of Directors and Boards. He's the retired Edgar S. Wooler Chair in Corporate Governance and the founding director of the Weinberg Center for Corporate Governance at the University of Delaware. His other academic credentials include more than a decade as a law professor at Stetson, visiting professorships in the law schools of the University of Illinois, Cordell and Maryland. He was also a Herbert Smith Freehills Fellow at Cambridge University in the UK. He's written extensively on boards of directors, served on advisory boards for both the National Association of Corporate Directors and the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. He is and has been a director at myriad of companies. His hard work and thought leadership has been recognized with honors from directorship, treasury and risk management, global proxy watch, ethosphere, and I'm probably missing a bunch of others. <laughs> Charles is also public spirited, having served as a trustee for such nonprofit organizations as the Big Apple Circus, Tampa <laughs> Museum of Art, Delaware Museum of Natural History, Museum of American Finance and the Brandywine Conservancy. Welcome, Charles. Thank you very much, John. Good to good to be with an old friend. What's your origin story? Where? How did you grow up? Are there two or three experiences that were formative and stand out in your memory to help you become the person you are today? That's a you know that's a, that's a good question. I'm from Atlanta originally, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. My dad went to law school decided that he was not going to be a lawyer. He always joked the best business decision he made was decided not to be a lawyer. And he went into business and uh, his father's business, which he didn't want to go into, but it's realizing he couldn't be a great lawyer. He did. And he was very successful with it and did quite well. And But what really got him going, he's still alive, gets him going, is really the outside stuff community service. He and my mother both very active uh, in the community in Atlanta and, and, and really many different places. Dad ended up founding National Public Radio in Washington, which is interesting, one of the big first chairman of it. And mom was head of the National Mental Health Association, sort of her interest. And they, so as, as a kid, they were very busy in different things. And I think my brothers and I learned that your, your vocation is really important. You need to do something you enjoy doing and you need to do it well. But your avocation, frankly, can bring you as much pleasure and joy and excitement 
And I looked at their lives and they were very active in the community and all kinds of organizations. And it had an effect on me because I've been involved in a lot of stuff uh, outside of uh, our mutual field over the years. And I've really enjoyed it. Uh, sort of the great memories I have are the things that were not necessarily professionally related and always had fun with them. But my folks sort of big angle in life has always been the notion of meritocracy. They always were big believers that ultimately your best uh, advocate and your best uh, way to achieve good things was doing it well and doing it successfully. And that those that in a society uh, of, uh, of merit, that uh, the best things come out of it, meet the most interesting people. And uh, growing up in Atlanta in the 1960s, which was during the civil rights era, a lot of those people that were involved, we knew they were, you know, good friends of my folks. And uh, you came to look at uh, life as the strength and importance of the individual, as opposed to a, a, a group identification. The key was that who you were individually and what you did brought you and your community success. And I've always, uh, I've always believed in that. And it, it's really influenced the way I've looked at corporations, the way I've looked at the law and the, the vitality and strength of the individual. And so I can remember many instances in, in, as a kid and when my parents would take very, um, what were at the time considered uh, very difficult positions on a number of issues, my dad particularly. And he always emphasized the fact that, look, you know, taking a tough position may not be the greatest thing for you, but it is the greatest thing for the greater good. And that a, a tough decision and being an advocate for the right position is ultimately the best way to live one's life. And I've always sort of subscribed to that. I think sometimes taking positions that, uh, that I thought was the right one, but probably for self-interest wasn't the right one, has caused a lot of sometimes pain, but ultimately in the long term, I'm glad I did it. I'm going to come back to to do the right thing you say you've you've suffered every once in a while about because I want to I want to hear about that. But since I assume they will be vocational, I want to ask you a question first to to give context for the listeners who aren't experts in the field. What's your definition of corporate governance? Why is it important? Why should the average listener care? Well, corporate governance, John, is really the way that we govern organizations, business organizations, and and, and non-business too, universities, uh, nonprofits. Uh, it, it's you know, we have governance for political institutions, but how we govern uh, our business institutions really matters as to the way they function. And the key really is if you look at a business that its ultimate object is creating a superior product at a fair price, then uh, how do you get there and, 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 and deliver a return to the investors who committed their capital to it? And it's really about accountability, accountability and integrity, that the process has to have integrity. Otherwise, you'll never be a successful business, certainly, number one. Number two, integrity is guaranteed, at least in some respects, by accountability. And what a governance system does is it creates uh, structures that are filled by people who, uh, uh, who work together in effective ways to create ultimately a successful enterprise. And what governance is really all about is how you set those structures up 
so that you have accountability of those running the business, accountability to the board and accountability to the investors in the corporation, and ultimately accountability to society. This corporation is you know, part of our, our society and how those structures operate that way. And how do you create those structures? Now, within that, there are all kinds of questions. Well, gee, uh, how should the board be populated? What is the responsibility of the manager to the board? How much do you pay the manager? Uh, what, uh, how do you ensure that the board is accountable to the shareholders? And that's really what modern corporate governance is about. And we've tried to come up with tweaks to structure and, 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 and redoing certain structures to create that accountability and integrity, which ultimately creates a better enterprise, I've always thought. You mentioned when we started, and now that we have the context, um, it's obvious where it fits into the accountability integrity framework. Um, sometimes you have to do the right thing and you get personally um, uncomfortable, if not penalized. Do you have an example of that in your career of it, when it's happened to you? <laughs> Sadly, many. <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, in, in your professional career, whether it is a legal academic you know, speaking out, taking positions that may not be kind of in the mainstream, uh, you know, and uh, or certainly as a director, you know, having to sometimes make tough decisions to, to uh, uh, go the other way from your fellow directors or diverge from management. And you just got to do what you think is right. And uh, that's about, about it. I mean, I've, in certain circumstances, I've had to be a dissenter, voted no on some transactions, uh, for which I took, you know, quite a bit of heat from my uh, fellow <laughs> colleagues on the board, uh, or had to raise issues that made others a little uncomfortable uh, in the business area, I mean, having to make the motion sometimes to terminate a CEO, a popular CEO, or even a, a respected CEO is tough, because people say, what were you thinking? Why did you do it? And you have to you have to do what you think is right. Uh, you know, it's one of those judgment things. You, know, you look at all the facts, you think about it, and ultimately you got to make a decision and stand by your guns. That's a tough one too, but someone's got to do it at some point, and that's your that's being a good steward for your investors, uh, and you know, obviously for the society in general. A successful company uh, floats all boats, so to speak. I think I have to ask, you want to give us any names to those CEOs that you suggested uh, leave office? Well, the, the most prominent of all was one, one chainsaw, Al Dunlap, uh, Al Dunlap at Sunbeam. Uh, you know, it wasn't just me. It was the other directors, too. We unanimously concluded that he should go. But that was a tough one. He was a very uh, well-known, uh, experienced, and very tough uh, business person and uh, very strong personality. And uh, having to say, you're wrong, you got to leave, was very difficult. And one didn't know what the consequences of doing so was at the time, but you just have to do what you got to do. Uh, again, in the nonprofit side, been involved where, you know, several, you know, uh, you know directors perhaps had to leave. <clears throat> and you, and, and it might not have been involved by popular in the community, but ultimately it was, in fact, the right thing to do. Sometimes you're successful at it. Sometimes you're not. The Chainsaw Al story, I, I want to get into that for a second because it's, yeah, sure. it's a perfect segue. Let's talk about superstar CEOs. And I'm talking about CEOs who conflate their success and their outsized personalities with their companies. And there yeah. are a few in every generation. They always start, well, get their egos fed, 
think they're smarter than us, and we all agree they get paid more, they have broader influence on society. You mentioned Al Dunlap, he was called Chainsaw because of the glee with which he downsized companies and fired employees. At the peak of his fame, in fact, he had a different nickname. I think it was Rambo and Pinstripes. Right. He posed for a picture with an ammunition belt strapped across his suit. Um, he looked ridiculous. And he, he said he, he had traits of psychotics, but that, that was good because it made him decisive and a leader. During his heyday, he was lauded for seeking confrontation, viewed as being strong. Next generation was Jack Welch, positively lionized for his time at General Electric. With the passage of time, his performance record looks a lot like financial engineering that boosted short-term at the expense of the long-term. There was the environmental degradation of the Hudson River, an absolutely rapacious exit package of $417 million, which in today's world would be almost three-quarters of a billion dollars. And while Welch's reputation hasn't suffered as much as Dunlop's, whom several publications have put on this as the worst CEO of all time, I don't think he's quite the beatified figure he was. And today, of course, we have Elon Musk, who seems to have a conflict follow him, like Pigpen had a dark cloud follow him in the old Peanuts comics, and Jeff Bezos, and Mark Zuckerberg, and, you know, Sunder, we can go on and on. And, and I just feel like I'm watching a never-ending Shakespearean tragedy, Macbeth crossed with Groundhog Day. They like to, in the vernacular of Silicon Valley, break things. They don't have a lot of regard for rules. And to be fair, the rules aren't enforced around them. They seem to get a pass. And so I don't know how history will view this current generation of larger-than-life CEOs, but if past is prologue, it won't be as kindly as we do today. What's your view on the pluses and minuses of such big personalities and superstars in business? Why is it a recurring theme? Well, I think it's a recurring theme in human history. What these people are, are they're not managers, they're entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, a manager is a great thing under certain circumstances. The problem with managers traditionally is they find it hard to innovate because they're taught to manage, not to create. Entrepreneurs are great innovators. They create. They're usually lousy managers. That's the problem. Uh, they have great ideas. They take us to the next level, but they are find it very difficult to manage that level. That, that they're always looking forward. They can't seem to, in many circumstances, figure out how to manage what they've created. That's why, frankly, a lot of them don't last that long at their organizations. Uh, and then they usually go on to do something else somewhere else. The manager who has an entrepreneurial bent is really the best kind of person you can find. They know how to run a business. They know how to get along with people but they're creative and they, they look for new ideas. That's the best one of them all. Hard to find though, they, they rarely exist because the two traits are so different. You know, steady state versus looking beyond. And the quote superstar CEO is an entrepreneur basically that, that has grown beyond a small enterprise and ended up running a very large enterprise. I mean, that's what I, I always kind of liked about Al Dunlap because I thought he was very entrepreneurial in his, in his way or, or any of the sort of the great figures. The problem with them are generally is that they, they don't know limits. Uh, they don't know their own limits. And maybe that's what makes them so successful. They always look beyond the obvious. Uh, they take risks. But that's where the boards come in. I think a good board 
with a quote unquote superstar, so to speak, CEO is a great combination because you're able to rein the person in a bit. In other words, uh, 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 allow for their innovation, but insist on managerial skills once the innovation has been created. The problem with that is most of those sort of folks don't have very good boards. They're, su they're such dominant personalities that the, the board becomes a board is gonna be more folks who lit advise them uh, as opposed to oversee them, monitor them. And that's the, the typical problem of the captured board, if you will, and the strong and the strong entrepreneur. But that's classic because that's how they got to be the way they are, the entrepreneurs. Um, and that's you see that every time one of these folks appears, a board that is less than uh, uh, enthusiastic in their monitoring, and these folks ultimately get themselves in trouble. That's why I'm so uh, 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 upset with dual class companies, because I think dual class stock companies basically gives the entrepreneur completely free reign without any sort of um, any sort of guardrails around them. Certainly no guardrails from the board because they pick the board and no guardrails from the shareholders because of the dual class. The entrepreneur controls the thing. And that's a really dangerous combo. So I think the superstar once in a while is a good thing. I think if, uh, but I think a superstar unbridled, unmonitored, uh, not carefully counseled is not such a good thing and ultimately leads to a problem. Just to clarify for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with the terminology, dual class boards are um, structures where normally the CEO, insiders, often a founder, um, have different classes of shares from the normal person. And so basically through, they, their shares may have 10 times the voting power, for instance. And so they basically control the board rather than have the board um, be accountable to the board. But that's a very specific situation. It's actually often come out of Silicon Valley startups. Let me ask you more broadly. You've been doing this for a long time. We've both been doing it for a long time, but, but I'm going to focus on you. Uh, <laughs> you've been doing this for a long time, for more than 40 years. You've had a very unique window into not just corporate governance, but that means American capitalism. So let me ask you, from the point of view of society as a whole, what's improved and what's regressed? That's a great question. I think what has improved are the notions of the importance of integrity and accountability. You know, in, in business dealings, and I think that that's kind of coincident with the corporate whole corporate governance movement. The idea of independent boards, the idea of equity holding boards, who effectively monitor the management of the company for the benefit of the investors. I think that the ownership of equity in this country is so broad based today, through retirement funds and and, and whatnot, that this is a a capitalist society that where the owners are a broad-based swash of, of the country, maybe even globally, that everyone in this country in some way, shape or form has a stake in, in, in our business system, not just as employees, but as owners through their retirement funds. And because of that, you've created greater accountability mechanisms on management, on your boards, through your boards, compliance, uh, auditing and whatnot, than you had 20, 30 years ago. Boards 20, 30 years ago were partially on the corporate fish, so to speak. They look good, 
and they were there for decoration, but you didn't want to eat them. That 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 the board was really a cheerleading section for the manager, as opposed to looking out for the shareholders' interest in overseeing the management. And I think we've gotten a lot better at that. And I think because of that, you've seen a lot better run, much better, more effectively run corporations than you did. CEOs who weren't so effective being moved along much quicker than they would have years ago when they probably wouldn't have moved on at all. And I think the attention to the, the bottom line of the company, the attention to comp effective competition uh, it, it, within industries, I think has created for us much better products and a much better environment, living environment, frankly. What has kind of regressed, and this is cyclical. I mean, every time you, you have a great, you know, a disaster and a change, massive change, great things come out of the change. The difficulty is once things get better, people kind of forget about how they were originally. And you start to slip back into those bad habits that got you in trouble to begin with. As I said, human history is, is clearly cyclical. I mean, it's interesting. We've had in this country probably one of the most successful economies we've ever had. I mean, in the end, I mean, there are more people enjoying uh, a, 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 a great experience from this, this system than ever before in human history. But once you get comfortable, you forget about how you got there. And I look at, uh, I guess, polls that talk about uh, the youth in this country thinking, oh, they're more attuned to a, a socialist system as opposed to a capitalist system. And the idea is, well, capitalism created these evils. Well, no, you have to go back and, and grown up in an era where you know, there were countries that had gone the other way and were really economic disasters. And, they, and their governments were overthrown by their people because they didn't want to live in misery because they looked at us. They said, boy, they, they, they look pretty good. The danger in our country is we've created so much success. People, I think, miss out on how tough it was to get there. And, you know, every generation says this, but I do think it's this pointed today and explains a lot of the concerns you see about capitalism in its, in its essence. And, but I think it's, I think the problem is when you try to regulate it, John, it too heavily, you stifle innovation and you, and you stifle ultimately the good things that are produced by it. It's gonna produce some rough spots and that's where smart regulation comes in or smart regulation, not necessarily on the part of the government, but from your board, the boards themselves, the governor, if you will, on, on the, 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 the superstar genius. And, and that's the where I think we kind of slipped back a bit, but I think we're much further ahead today than we were you know, 20, 30 years ago. And uh, it, it's nice to see it. I just hope we don't get too comfortable with it, which I think we have begun to do, whereby we uh, sort of try to reinvent the wheel, if you will, and go back to where we, we started. That would be the most depressing of them all. I'm going to make your day, or at least the next few yeah. minutes. Oh, okay, shoot. Miraculously, Charles Elson is now America's corporate governance czar. There's a new joint federal position, combined yeah. SEC chair with chief justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. Oh, and the other 49 states, as well as the District of Columbia, have agreed to give deference to your opinions. Oh, boy. <laughs> what are the two or three new laws or regulations that you would put into place? I don't know if it'd be real regulation. I think the key to me is on boards of our public companies. I think, number one, the directors need to be independent of management. 
Number two, they all need to own equity in the company itself, either purchase both purchased equity and given to them in, in exchange for their services on the board. And I, I don't think you can have a regulation to do this, but I think that those on the board should have certain expertise where they all come together to form a, a cohesive monitoring group. And I think you want people on that board with guts, uh, courage. That's the hardest thing about being a director, I think, is the ability to speak up because, you know, no one wants to be the, you know, the, the fly at the picnic, the end of the picnic. No one wants to raise tough issues. But sometimes they've got to, you got to, it has to be done. And I think that, that, that where there was always an historically a premium or a, 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 a premium, but a, an antagonism to dissent, I don't think that's really bad on board. And I think sometimes dissent and hard discussions need to be had. And I think people have to have the guts to do it. That's sort of, if I had to do it, that to me is the center point of an effective corporation and effective capitalism. The idea that you have a good independent board who can look for rationally good management and monitor them to produce ultimate value to the investors. I would continue the shareholder primacy model. I think the stakeholder model uh, is a bit of a mistake. I think even under primacy, you have to consider the other stakes and you do, but making the other stakes co-equal co with the shareholders, I think is a mistake. It creates a lack of accountability not ultimately poor results. And I'll tell you, so it, it's a minor itch, if you will. I get rid of dual class stock in public companies. I, I believe strongly in one share, one vote. And I think that that was a real mistake. And a lot of the corporate uh, problems or pathologies we've seen have come out of that structure. Nothing good comes about it from it. I think it's a, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the superstar theory on steroids that uh, the brilliant genius must be left alone and, and no one can, can critique the genius. And that's where geniuses get themselves in trouble. And uh, everyone, no one is above making mistakes or no one is above failure. And you got to have a good sort of a resource group, if you will, looking out for you telling you when you're about to steer into the wrong into the wrong place and that's your board and your shareholders and that's credit critical we're having this conversation over zoom i have to say i i i miss our normal conversation because usually it's over a glass of wine i do too <laughs> usually a very nice wine you're a chevalier de testvin for those unfamiliar with the term it means charles drunk and a lot of very good wine often burgundy you clearly love it. So let me ask you, why? And I do not mean that at all cynically, but my experience is that some people love wine for the taste. Some have a Proustian re uh, reaction. It's a memory. I drank it with my first lover or, or I drank it at a place at a time or whatever. And some take almost a scientific view of liquid, breaking it down and tasting and you know, wine speaking granular opponents. And some people, quite honestly, treat wine as some sort of societal class admissions test. So why do you like wine? I like wine because I like the taste. I think it's interesting. And the alcohol and the wine, I'm not as wild about because you can't consume as much as, as you could if it were non-alcoholic. I'd kind of rather be non-alcoholic because I, like I like the subtleties of the flavor. I got into it um, a long time ago. My dad had was a uh, 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 was a wine uh, nut and so he'd always have you know he'd always have wine at dinner as a kid 
we wouldn't. And then when we got older, my brother turned 21. My dad had had a wine that he bought when my brother was born, uh, his birth year. And we had it. And I said, boy, this is this is good. What makes this good? He says, what do you mean? What makes this good? It's just good. I said, no, what? Why do you think it's good? He said, well, you really have to try a lot of different things. So he uh, was going back to law school and we went out and got a case of stuff. Some not so good, some good. He said, try one to each of these. Next time you, you know, you have folks over or you go out, try something different. Don't, oh, don't ever order the same thing. And, he, and I went out and got a book and I was reading about it. And he was right. There were huge differences between them. And I started to think this is really kind of interesting. I also found that people who happen to be interested in wine, like you, John, happen to be pretty interesting too. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a, it's a fun commonality, and I think it's really the taste itself that 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 makes it that makes good. Look, I like good barbecue too, by the way. Uh, I, I don't think a, 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 a habit or hobby that uh, uh, someone say was only smallly shared. <laughs> a lot of people, I think, I just like the, the flavors of the stuff, and I, I like the different varieties and the sauces. And uh, but I mean, it's fun seeing who does what with it. I like a good hot dog. <laughs> That's important too. But I, I think, from a wine standpoint, I think it's the flavor. Certainly, I think it's the aroma too. The nose is really important. You know, some. Great wines will have not so good noses. Some wines have a terrific nose and you get into the wine, it's not, it's not as good. I think that's just half the fun of it. And you never know what you're gonna get next. You think you know, you think you know the producer, you think you know the year, and it, the bottle could turn out terrific and it turn, could turn out terrible, as I'm sure you've experienced. I think that's just kind of, well, not fun when it's terrible because you had spent the money on it. Like, well, what do I do? Nothing, <laughs> throw it away. Uh, but that's half the fun of it, I think. Let's finish with some short Q&A. Yep. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? Oh, I would say uh, I would say this this ter terrific debate in, in in our area on the purpose of the corporation. I think that's been absolutely fascinating. Back and forth, where, where are we going and where this how this resolves itself, John has huge impact. I think on the future as uh, future success of our site. Okay. How do you relax? Oh, I'm a I'm a runner. I go running. I like the I like the wine from time to time. You know, good reading and whatnot. And uh, you know, honestly, I think I relax best with other people. You know, the kids here, having a lot of folks around. Uh, I like a good conversation. To me, that's the most relaxing of them all. Bizarrely, you mentioned good reading. What are you reading right now? A lot of different stuff. I'm a watch fanatic. I collect old watches and so i'll i find watch books watch magazines which are kind of fun i just finished a, a interesting biography of uh victor krulak krulak who was coming out of the marine corps he and i served on a board together i thought that was an interesting interesting book you know if something i usually whatever catches my eye john you know, I, I, I can pull a great, uh, you know, a, a great piece of fiction. I can pull, I'll, I'll sometimes go back to the classics, uh, reread a Hemingway. I'll reread, you know, one of sort of the great authors of my past. Uh, sometimes I, I like junk reading. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the crazy detective story you find at the airport. I'm eclectic in that. Or really a, a good biography I've always found interesting too. I'm really kind of all over the road in that respect. I was a history major, political history major in college. So that always is entertaining to me. Or business history, uh, I find interesting too. I'm, a, I'm very eclectic. In, uh, in my do you life. listen to music? I do. Uh, 60s, 
favorite. <laughs> 60s, I mean, 1960 and maybe 1968. That's my, my sweet spot. Love classical music. I love the blues. Uh, the Southern blues are great. Jazz, modern jazz and contemporary, you know, contemporary any, classical music. Any particular artists you want to you tell? You know, that's a good question. Um, gosh, uh, uh, in fact, I've got on my wall, you can't really see it, uh, W.C. Handy. <laughs> I've got his autograph. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know him. <laughs> You know, the, the, the old blues guys, I, I think, are really fascinating. My uh, mom's family's from Memphis, and Memphis was kind of the home of the blues. And so, you know, Beale Street in Memphis, you, you could hear some great stuff. And the old recordings of that stuff, it really, I, I enjoy. It really depends on the mood. And I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you on a secret. You know what else I like? Bizarrely, easy listening, beautiful music. <laughs> Why? Because you put it on. And your mind can just go blank. <laughs> so, bizarre. Once is there an emotion you wish you could feel more often? You know, I, I think the most important emotion of all is empathy. I think that's the motion, emotion, if you will, that uh, really keeps society intact in that being empathetic. Sympathy is one thing. Sympathy is feeling bad for someone else. Empathy is feeling bad for them because you've experienced what they've experienced. And I think a great business leader has a great deal of empathy. And that's what I look for, that em empathetic business leaders, empathetic politicians, uh, any kind of leader in any way, shape or form in, in, in our society, that's the real key to it. And people who lack empathy ultimately get themselves and uh, others around them in trouble. I, I think empathy, in a way, is a governor on excessive, excessive actions. And to me, that's an emotion I, 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 I like to have and I like to have more of. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Integrity. Integrity is the most important thing of them all. A good reputation, so hard to gain, so easy to lose. And it comes out of integrity. A great name shall be had rather than great riches. Proverbs. And I, I've always believed that. And, and that's integrity. I mean, you have to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. You have to do what you think is right. And it may, you know, it may bite you from time to time. But in the long term, uh, you've done the right thing. And I think if more people possess that quality uh, strongly, I mean, I think everyone has some of it, but I mean, some are more, have more integrity than others. I think you'd have a much better world. You're not going to. I mean, that's just the human condition. But uh, I've always told my kids that when you run into someone with integrity and courage, never let them get out of your sight. Grab hold onto them and never let go because you're not going to see that many of them. And when they appear, they're the best kinds of people and the best kinds of friends of them all. Don't don't let them go. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik and our special guest, Charles Elson. Charles, thanks so much. Thank you, John. Always good to be with you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukumnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. 
Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.